Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia. I'm here with Joel and we're sitting across from Sally Rugg, the author of How Powerful We Are. Welcome, Sally. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming in. So for people who don't know Sally, she's a uh, the executive director of Change.org and was the campaign manager, director? Sorry. I was Yeah, I was a campaign director at GetUp. At GetUp and specifically for the marriage equality campaign. And that's largely what your book is about. Yeah, I mean, it's overwhelmingly what my book is about. <laughs> my five years working at GetUp, um, but uh, in coalition with activists across the country working to achieve marriage equality. Yes. So before we do anything else, I personally just wanted to thank you for the work you did. It was very meaningful and reading the book gave me a m- much bigger sense of how much work was involved from everyone involved in, in the activism around it and it personally was a big deal for me so I just wanted to thank you. (laughs) Well I'm grateful for that but I'm going to take your thanks and disperse it widely (laughs) because I mean as my book sort of puts forward the you know marriage equality wasn't achieved by a handful of activists who people may or may not recognize like it was really achieved by hundreds of thousands of ordinary people working together and I think that's what makes it so spectacular. Absolutely and that's one of the sort of central through lines I think of the book is that you wanted to sort of shift the narrative away from um, the idea that um, power is given to people Mm. by the powerful that's Uh, right rights and rights are given to people by the powerful and instead it's it's a it's a more groundswell of people demanding it and getting it that's right it was really important to me uh, both to do justice to the work that was done but also looking to the future It's really important to me that we as a society as much as possible can understand how change happens like so that we can understand this incredible thing we did together because you're right, uh, change doesn't happen because the powerful suddenly have a change of heart and decide to afford it to the marginalised and the oppressed. Change happens because we make it happen, because we fight for it. And so I was trying to... What I've tried to do is capture that... uh, and, and capture the work of, of Australians across the country so we can um, be proud of it and also so we can replicate it because there's so much left to do. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's never-ending. That must mm. be both uh, thrilling and depressing at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the other things that I think is really special about this book is that it's not just a retelling of what happened. It's also a sort of handbook for, like you say, how to replicate it. And I think... For someone who, for a lot of people out there who think of activism in the internet age as this sort of slacktivism, people sitting on their asses and signing a petition and nothing actually happening, it's really thrilling to read about how uh, intense and professionalised the industry around activism is. Um, So I wondered if you could speak a little bit to that. I'm sure we'll go into more detail as we keep talking. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I'll pick you up on one thing because... Um, you use the word slacktivism, which is a really common word. Um, but I, you know, slacktivism as a concept um, is rooted in um, this this deliberate um, this deliberate sort of like engineering of activists um, as being something to scorn. Activism is something to laugh at. You know, activists are cast in the media um, as you know, lay about hippies or tree huggers or, you know, inner city latte sipping bleeding hearts. You know, there's all sorts of terms to um, 
be derogatory towards activism. And the reason why it is in the interest of the media, the like the government and all sorts of powerful institutions to scorn activism is because you know, like it's is to try and undermine power, undermine their power. So I mean I we I mean I work at change.org now, which is all about signing petitions and <laughs> signing and signing a petition can be really powerful, particularly when it's just the first step. Like you sign a petition and then you take more action. Um, but yeah, so my in in the book I talk about what we did in the campaign and also how how people reading it might apply those lessons to the future. Both what went well and also what did not go well and a bunch of the harder lessons that I had to learn on the campaign. Absolutely. I just really, um, you know, I, I should point out too that I used lactobacillus ironically for myself. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I got that, I got I that. I love signing a petition <laughs> and I have gotten involved through, in things through that way as well. So I, I totally get what you're saying. Um, I, as a, um, a baby uh, political wonk, loved the sort of um, data mining, uh, sort of having to slice and dice the resources you have in order to apply them to your goal. And I, I loved that part of it, where you were actually having to practically make decisions about how you're going to resource things. And particularly when it came to winning the postal survey, that was a decision where you had to sort of slice the Australian populace into how supportive they were of, mm. of marriage equality. That's right. With I mean, with limited time, limited resources, limited uh, energy, I suppose, um, activists and campaigners have to make smart, strategic decisions. Firstly, in order to actually make change and secondly, in order to be um, sort of honest with the, with the community you're representing in, you know, treating people's time and money and um, commitment with the utmost respect to me is making sure that the, those resources are used in the most strategic way possible. Absolutely. And the reporting that is done on the way that you strategize is also something that you'd have to manage and it would become very exhausting trying to control as much as possible the public image of what you're doing and how it gets reported. It's funny, yeah, people don't like to think that they're being sold to and that's what, you know, that's what campaigning is for, for like for want of a better word. Um, we are all being marketed to constantly, whether it's advertising to buy clothes or a certain lifestyle or indeed our political opinions like that we are constantly being marketed to and that's always been the case it's just that now it might look like an advertisement on your Facebook feed rather than an advertisement on your television set. Mm. And then even like further than that is now on the flip side of having achieved marriage equality um, due in a large part to the actions that have been taken by you and the people that you work with and then one thing that I like about this book is that you're trying to set the record straight of who exactly is responsible for it in terms of, um, like, I don't want to be overly, like, um, critical, but I think that there have been several parties that have tried to take more credit for what happens than what they actually sure, like, yeah, were responsible for. Exactly. And that was what initially drove me to write the book is because we had the survey was won and the law was about to change and already I had seen history being rewritten and I saw the Liberal Party but also all political parties claim the credit as if they had they had done this for us and 
parliament passed marriage equality eventually and, you know, thank, thanks, guys. But it <laughs> took a really long time and they were really pushed um, kicking and screaming and dragging their heels. So, I mean, that's fine. It's not about It's not about taking credit, but it's about capturing actually what happened because if we if we if if we sort of gloss over how change happens and the end will always justify the means and i think the means by which we operate as a society needs to be held to account yeah and is that it, it's a complication on that old adage about who who history is written by the winners that's because right you you were part of the winners but you don't necessarily get to write the history yes. because it is a group movement and it is complex. Mm. And and the final leg of what happened when Parliament finally got off their asses and voted, which they could have done from the very beginning, yeah. uh, was was just a, it, it, that was the part that is sometimes left in people's minds, I think. Exactly. Um, and the activism that took the Australian community from you know, homosexuality being criminal up until 1997 in Australia. That was when homosexuality was fully decriminalised. From that to 20 years later, having uh, same-sex couples be granted the right to marry. The, the activism that it took over those 20 years was too incredible to be chalked up as inevitability. It's, we, we should all feel proud of what we did together, not just LGBTIQ Australians. You know, that's something that we as a nation achieved together and it's something we should celebrate. Absolutely. I'm, it was a very exciting... I think it's been a very exciting time to grow up in Australia because it does feel like within my lifetime I went from, you know, being teased at school to feeling like people actually accept who you are mm. and you can be open about things that you could never have been... I would never have felt comfortable being open about many years ago. Um, do you feel like... How, how do you quantify that in your head, the, the change that was achieved by activists versus the change the change of heart in the population you know i think I, I think i can't quantify it i don't think anybody can and if we could quantify it you know we'd we'd need you know years and years and halls and halls and you know it, it would be impossible to quantify um the change and the impact of that change but i i think i can feel it and i think i can see it already um not just in the same-sex marriages that are happening across the country, but in the slow change uh, in attitudes, particularly with young people. Mm. You know, every single young person, whether they're queer or not, is now going to grow up in a country where it's it's okay to be gay and get married. Absolutely. Mm. I love that. And it's even a change that you can see happening in older people. And another thing that I love about this book is it's um, telling people about the power of the individual. Like, individually, you can decide that you don't want to stand for discrimination you don't want to support like that kind of evil and you can change your views because they're just in a, I think in the case of a lot of people it's something that's been socially conditioned they've been socially conditioned to believe and they've never questioned it until there are people like yourself that encourage them to think hey maybe this isn't okay maybe this is something that I need to change mm -hmm. and I love um I, lo I just love the title like how powerful we are because it's like yes, how powerful I am, but also how powerful we all we all are together. Thank you. Which is cool. Um, I mean, this this campaign took a, quite a toll on you as a, a human person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, your psychology and um, you know just 
physically. It's, it was very demanding. Um, and I noticed while reading the book that I really noticed this section where you talked about um, when you were a little little girl and you made your sister cry by not not you were not giving her some toy. And yeah, then... she wanted to play with the yellow truck and I wouldn't <laughs> give it to her. And she, um, you know, I, I, I was four, so she would have been three. Um, and she worked herself up. Well, I worked her up into tears. She's crying and I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to give it to you. She's crying, making a big scene. And so I relented and was like, fine, have it. And my mum swooped in above us and yanked the toy back from my crying sister and shoved it back into me and was like, no, well, you've made your sister cry now. If, if you were going to give her the toy all along, then don't make her cry. Um, and... And then, you know, forced me, it was sort of a teachable moment, forced me to watch my sister cry as I held onto the truck. And I was like, oh, but I want to give it to her and make her, you know, make her feel better. And my mum was like, well, you should have thought about that before you made her cry for no reason. Um, you can live with the guilt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's such a, I was like, that is some, that's some A-grade mum, mumming right there. Like, yeah. I mean, you know. And so I think it, um, the way it, that experience is shaken out and lives within me now is that I um, I do try to really pick my battles. Like I don't think it's worth fighting for no reason. I don't want to have an argument if it doesn't actually matter. I don't want to cause a conflict if it's actually going to be okay. You know, don't upset people for no reason. Um, but when I do choose to fight for something, it's... I think about it very carefully and I'm very deliberate about it and and then I won't let it go. Mm. <laughs> and then I'm determined. Yeah, and that's definitely that's sort of what I was getting at with your the, the toll it took on you that you just didn't give up. You kept going when it could have you could have at, at a certain points in the book you talk about how if you had stepped back someone would have stepped up. Sure. Like my I'm I'm not special. You know, I was there are you know, my work on the campaign was no greater than anybody else's work on many, many other people's work on the campaign. And had I had I bowed out because it was too much, someone would have taken my place. Like, I am not an irreplaceable asset. Mm. <laughs> um, but but I, I, I also couldn't let it go because I was so determined. Yeah. Um, one of the things I found interesting in the book is – and just – in our past <laughs> was how, and for me personally, how um, activating it was when John Howard was Prime Minister and passed the changes to the Marriage Act and in particular requiring marriages to have the definition of marriage inserted into the actual ceremony. That's right. The new definition um, had to be read aloud, otherwise a marriage wasn't legal and the new definition was Marriage is the union between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. Yeah. And I personally, that was one of those things that felt like overreach. Mm. And I wondered whether you had an opinion about how much things like that had an impact on changing people's minds. You know, like sometimes you just feel like if you had just not done that, <laughs> maybe you would have got away with this for another 10 years. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they would have gotten away with it, but it certainly served as a reminder every single wedding from 2004 until the, the uh, act was amended again. 
um, those words punctured every single wedding ceremony and it reminded every guest there who this, who this privilege was for and who it was not for. Um, and so, you know, it, and I think, I think the reminder probably was heard and perceived by different wedding guests differently. I'm sure mm. some people didn't bat an eyelid. But I also know many, many couples around the country um, would take certain measures, you know, asking guests to block their ears or they would take that opportunity at their wedding to um, advocate to their guests and say, you know, my, you know, my soon-to-be husband and I believe that this should be afforded to same-sex couples, you know, would use that moment to sort of preach a little bit for the campaign. Mm. Um, yeah. Virtually every wedding I went to in that period, absolutely, that's what happened. And I and personally didn't get, I did not want to get married uh, I'm with a long-term relationship with a woman, um, but we got engaged after marriage equality was passed because we could not conceive of the fact that all of our friends, many of whom are LGBTIQ Australians, yeah. would would have to sit there and listen to that. And and we were vocal about talking about it. And I just thought it was one of those things that really pissed a lot of people yeah. off. And you're right, a lot of people also didn't get engaged or didn't get married until it, it was available to everybody, which mm. was very kind. Yes. Well, <laughs> um, I wondered... I mean, this, I feel like there's so much to talk about in this mm. book. I don't even know where to, uh, mm-hmm. t- to attack it. I've got pages and pages of notes. Okay. <laughs> but um, I, I think one of the interesting things for me was the point at which you had to... Um, because the campaign, it was really interesting to hear about the early part of the campaign before the plebiscite was a thing, when you were talking about how you targeted individual politicians mm. and the point at which you had to pivot from that type of campaign to having to convince five and a half million Australians to vote. To vote. Can you tell us a bit about how that, how that pivot took place? Yeah, sure. So um, before the postal survey, the marriage equality campaign was largely what we would call a target-centred campaign, which is where um, a campaigner like me or you know, an activist group or whatever um, aims to organise large groups of people um, in a neighbourhood or around a certain issue or whatever it might be, um, to come together and use their collective power to exert upwards pressure on a decision maker. So that decision maker might be um, what's you know commonly a, a government or a minister or you know someone in in politics. Um, it can be a company, it can be a local council, it can be a sporting code, you know, whatever it is. But you you have a a powerful decision maker or decision making body and then people collectively organise to put pressure on that. Um, So the campaign up until then had been um, targeting state governments, targeting councils, targeting the federal government. Um, But it was all this target-centred campaigning. And then when it was, when we were forced to a postal survey, that mode had to completely change because we were no longer trying to organise hundreds of thousands of people to exert pressure upwards. Instead, we... Because there was no decision-maker, instead we had to get these hundreds of thousands of people to take the action themselves. You know, they were the decision-maker in a way. They had to tick a box and post a letter. And so that type of campaigning uh, is called get-out-the-vote campaigning, which is common in the United States where um, electoral... Uh, voting is non-compulsory so instead of sort of trying to convince somebody um, to do with to change their mind on a thing you're trying to convince the people who already believe in your thing to take an action 
Um, so it's a it's a really unusual type of campaigning in Australia. Elections in Australia tend to be campaigned to a very small group of people. You're kind of speaking to 2,000 swing voters in this marginal electorate and 2,000 swing voters in that marginal electorate, whereas this was trying to reach, as you say, 5.5 million people who were all completely different all over the place, um, at different ages, backgrounds, education levels, incomes, religions, languages, you know, just massive group. And so at the beginning of the survey process, we had to sort of figure out this unwieldy task um, and it meant completely abandoning all the work we had been doing beforehand because it was no longer applicable. So mm. we just had to sort of, you know, take what we could, take the lessons we knew from it around like comms and, <laughs> you know, stuff around the campaign and then drop everything else and design a strategy that got out the vote. Yeah, that was, and it was amazing. And it's interesting because I, I love US politics. I mean, I hate US politics, but mm. I <laughs> sort of a love-hate relationship where I'm fascinated by it. And so reading about Australia's Get Out the Vote campaign was really weird and, yeah. and interesting. And yeah, not having any sort of homegrown expertise in doing that must, must have been so strange to turn that chip. I mean, mm. that we did have some homegrown expertise, but not at that massive national level. Mm, absolutely. Really fascinating. Um, mm. I mean, yes, I'm not sure where we can go with this. I think we have to at some <laughs> point say. <laughs> I, I, I would feel like, like the more we keep talking, we're just going to go through the entire going, book, and yeah, no one will ever have to. I don't want to go through the whole it. book. I want people to go and buy <laughs> it. But before we finish, I guess I'll ask where you think. What do you think is the next big fight, or is there even one big fight? Good yeah, um, and I hopefully have a good answer. I think. Um, the reason why Australia achieved marriage equality in the end is because allies of the LGBTIQ community felt called to step up and help people like me and they um, they went out of their way to support their neighbours and their, you know, family members and their colleagues and the rest of it um, because social justice campaigning for minority rights needs allies. We, we don't have the numbers, <laughs> the raw numbers by ourselves. And so I see what, what I hope is that the same ally-led campaign that was run for marriage equality can be replicated for um, the First Nations um, fight for um, their recommendations from the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which includes a voice to Parliament, constitutional recognition if they if that's uh, if that comes together, um, and a treaty with First Nations people. And the reason why the, it, you know this is the scale of campaigning that marriage equality was, and it's the same scale of national ally-driven campaigning um, that it'll take for um, First Nations Australians to um, finally take some meaningful steps towards sovereignty and justice and self-determination. Um, and the good news is, is I don't, none of us have to particularly become experts about it because there are people who are already experts on this campaign. There are First Nations activists who have written out a blueprint for Settler Australians saying this is exactly what we need. It's called the Uluru Statement from the Heart and all we need to do is just plug in behind it. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I, I, I think uh, most Booktopians actually would be 100% uh, on board with this, we we are you know selling a lot of books about 
um, First Nations Australians and First, uh, you know, Indigenous history in Australia. Mm. And I, it feels to me from this end that there, it, there is a zeitgeist rising. rising. Mm -hmm. And hearing you say that makes me think that means that there's an act, there's activists out there that are making some of that cultural change happen. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that Australia is a better country now that we have achieved marriage equality. I think we are a fairer and more compassionate and more loving country. It's, it, this isn't a reform just for same-sex couples. This is a reform for our entire nation. And I think that if we can um, move towards um, justice for First Nations communities, then again, the, it's, it's uh, going to create a better and stronger country for everybody. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And uh, you can buy How Powerful We Are from Booktopia. And I hope you do. And I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I hope you do too. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.